Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope everyone out there, hope they're doing just as fantastic. This guest that we have on is bringing to the table the really tragic death of an individual. And as you look into this more and you dig deeper, you do find that this death is probably most likely a homicide. And that is exactly what our guest is going to be talking about today. But Tim, what I want to be talking about right now is your mood. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. I'm excited to be here. We are continuing continuing our series of post CrimeCon interviews and we met Melissa Sandberg at CrimeCon and she was speaking very passionately about investigating the unsolved murder of Judith Petty and she's teamed up with a group of investigators in fact it's called the American Military University Cold Case Investigations Team and they're from Charlestown West Virginia but they're also known as the Safe Haven Team and Safe Haven is the name of their podcast as well that is looking into Judith Petty's death. And she was 48 years old when she went missing, and her body was found in February of 2008. And we get into all of the details here in this conversation with Melissa. But Tim, if people want to listen to all of these details and not get interrupted by commercial breaks, where would someone find this episode plus every single other episode that we've done without commercial breaks? Well, our lovely listeners can follow Crawlspace Pre premium on Apple Podcasts. But if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. You get early releases, ad-free episodes, and our weekly bonus show that everybody loves. And follow Crawlspace on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. All right, we'll be right back with our conversation about Judith Petty with Melissa Sandberg right after these commercials. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa Sandberg. How are you today? 
I am good. How are both of you? We're doing great today because we're talking with you about this really frustrating homicide. The reason why this is such a great moment and it's going to be such a great conversation is because we met you at CrimeCon and this is one of those byproducts of going to CrimeCon or going to one of these festivals, meeting people, hearing what they're passionate about, and then bringing you on to extend the platform that you have already developed with this homicide. Feel free to use it however you want. We're just in such a fortunate position to meet you and have you come on. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm like starstruck right now. I keep staring at both of you and like, oh my God, I can't believe this is my life right now. Story of my life every morning when I look <laughs> in the mirror. <laughs> so I'm just so excited that you both were so awesome at CrimeCon and that was my first time there. And I've been a fan of yours for years. Of course, you know, listening from the Maura Murray onto The Missing, just a big fan of both of you. And you were so kind at CrimeCon. And as I mentioned, had some drinks and I was, you know, oh my God, I have to go talk to the Maura Murray boys as I refer to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad you did. You came well-researched about the unsolved murder of Judith Petty. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. What got you interested in Judith's case? Me and my team, we're from the American Military University, and it's a cold case investigative team. And it's led by Jen, who is has a background in military and interrogation. And so we developed a cold case team, and we started looking at cases that were submitted to us. Judy's case was submitted to us, and there was something about Judy's that really stood out to me that I was like, this is the one that I want to take. Given her age, victimology is really low for Judy. And yet she was found on her family's farm 13 miles away. So there was just something about this case. And then we met the family, of course, and fell in love with them. So that was a big reason for us taking on Judy's case. And tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what is it about you that makes you so well equipped to handle a story like this? Because you certainly are. Tim said you came well-researched, and it's some of the best research that we've received through a chance encounter at CrimeCon. Well, thank you. I'm not quite sure. My background is actually, I'm a hospice social worker. My my title is a licensed clinical social worker, so LCSW, but I've worked in hospice 20 years. But I've worked with domestic violence victims, things like that, but I've always had a passion for solving cold cases. When I was in college back in the day, as I say, they didn't have a lot of options if you didn't want to be a cop. I've always wanted to be a homicide detective. Clue is my jam. You know, I'm always Miss Scarlet. But, you know, they didn't give you a lot of options back then of like, hey, if you don't want to be a cop, here's these other avenues that they have today. So I've always been interested in following along. And when I got this opportunity, I was like, oh, my God, it's my dream. How did this group form? And do you have several cases with this group? The first case I worked with them on was out of Lubbock, Texas in 1975. They had presented at CrimeCon a couple years ago. Author George Jarrett is also part of this group. So I had joined because we do uh, crowdsourcing. So I joined and I was like, you know, doing all this research on my end and sending it to them. And then I said, hey, if you're ever going to Lubbock, I'll go too. And they're like, well, we don't pay for you. I was like, that's fine. I'll pay myself. So then that's how I kind of got involved. And then from that point, uh, Jen and George were like, hey, we want to tackle two cases. If you want to lead one, we'll do another one. So I don't know if you're familiar with George, Jared, and Jen Bocoltz, but they were the ones on the Rebecca Gould case. So they had crowdsourced and lured the killer onto their Facebook. So Rebecca Gould out of Arkansas 
the killer got onto the Facebook and was communicating directly with Jen. And Jen has paid visits to him in prison. So he's the only one who has allowed Jen to come in and, and talk to him. William Miller. Yeah, so it was really interesting. So they're working another case right now out of Port Orchard, Linda Malcolm. And so they're taking that one and I've taken Judy Petty. They've written a few books too. You had said that there was something about Judith that stood out to you and you mentioned her age. Do you want to get into the circumstances of the crime now or is there more background that you think is relevant beforehand? No, I think we can get into her case because on the top of it, you look at it and it doesn't seem that not interesting, but you're kind of like, what are you going to do with this? Right. But the more you dug in and the more that we've gained in over a year, it's kind of how many turns can this case take? And there's so many things that went wrong in the investigation back in 2008. Just to kind of give the overview. So Judith Petty was 48 years old. She lived with her grandmother in Parkersburg, West Virginia. She was the full-time caregiver of her grandmother who had some dementia, Alzheimer's. At that time, I mean, Judy was never married. She had no kids. She never dated. She didn't go to the bar. When you looked at victimology, she doesn't have a lot of marks on the victimology. So just to interject really quickly, you said that she was 48 years old and lived a mostly simple life. You said she didn't drink. She wasn't somebody who would go out and party. She didn't have any kids, right? Correct. When you're looking at people who become victims as she did, they typically put themselves out there a little bit more. Is that statistically what we're, we're talking about is people who are more social and they've interacted with more people. They just have a statistically, I guess, worse chance of encountering somebody? Yeah. If you're married, right, then you have an ex-husband or a husband, you have, you know, kids, then you have friends of kids, like the circle widens. And in Judy's case, the circle is only her family. She wasn't working outside the house. She wasn't involved in social things. She was truly just a family person. You know, there wasn't anything else we could explore. Like, was it a job related? Did she have an affair with somebody? I mean, there really wasn't anything to show that the likelihood of her getting murdered by somebody she knew or related in that way was very low. And what happened was one day on February 6, 2008, she told her sister and nephew that she was going to go return some books at the library. Judy walked everywhere. She was diabetic. She was overweight. And so her doctor said, yeah, you should be out walking more. So she walked everywhere. So she walked to the library and returned books and they never saw her again. They were driving all around at night trying to find her. Where is she at? Where is she at? She never came back. They grew up on a family farm 13 miles away. Finally, you know, the dad was driving, you know, back and forth from the farm. Like she wouldn't be out here walking. It was February. It was nice out that day. But as it got darker, it gets darker earlier, right? In February, like she was in hiking boots. Like she wasn't dressed to be walking out to the farm. So the next day, her dad went back out to the family farm and the whole farm was in fire, engulfed in flames. The whole house, the cellar, his whole property. Their driveway is a third a mile up from the road on a mountain. So you can't even see just driving past if anything was going on up there until he got halfway up and he saw everything on fire. Where was Judy at that point? So they still couldn't find Judy. So the dad shows up and the house is on fire. He runs down the hill because there's zero cell reception up there. He runs down the hill to the neighbors to use their land phone. By the time the police got there, the fire trucks, it was so muddy because it had snowed and rained the night before. The trucks could not make it up that driveway. They had to use brush trucks. Well, the brush trucks wouldn't put out this massive fire that was in the cellar and the house So they let it burn out. And the dad is saying to everybody, listen, 
my daughter is still missing. My house's property's on fire. Like there has to be a, a relation here. Like what's going on? Like I, we still can't find my daughter. It wasn't until three days later, once they let the fire burn itself out, the cadaver dogs were brought in. They were circling the cellar, kind of hitting on the cellar. And that's when Judy's jawbone and some bones were recovered. Judy was cremated, if you will, in the cellar. Everything had fallen on top of her. And because they had allowed it to burn itself out, when you picked up her bones, they went to dust. The only thing that survived was her jawbone. And that's how they identified her and her liver, thankfully. So we know that she was dead prior to the fire because her liver had no gases to show that she was inhaling anything. And it also showed that there was no like drugs or alcohol in her liver. So thankfully her liver survived. It was like a softball size, but that's how we know that she was dead prior to the fire. When you said that they allowed the fire to burn out, did they not call the fire department or that was what the fire department had recommended just to allow it to burn out? Yeah. So the fire department was there every Everyone was trampling around everything because they still didn't know where Judy was. So they were treating it as like an arson case. But the dad is saying, but my daughter's missing and now this is on fire. But the problem was they the big fire trucks couldn't get up that driveway to put out the fire. So they would fill these little brush trucks and try to take that up there. But it wasn't enough to extinguish it all right on that day. So they're like, we're just going to allow it to burn itself out. Because by the time the dad got there, I should clarify, everything was already on the ground. The house was on the ground. The structure, there was, you know, two feet of flames. Like it was not up in flames. It had already collapsed everything. So were you able to learn the cause of Judy's death? It's undetermined. The ME did say to investigate it as suspicious due to the liver not having any gases and the condition of her bones and being found in the cellar. So where Judy was found, so there's the house structure. And back then they had a separate cellar, kind of like a Wizard of Oz, where you go hide in the cellar and you have those doors. There were stairs going down and they just kept canned foods down there. Mr. Petty kept a lot of the farm tools there. And Judy hated the cellar. And that's something so important in this case. She hated and was afraid of the cellar because of snakes growing up. She never went down there. It was creepy. That is where she was found. The doors to open up the cellar weren't there. So we believe that she was dragged backwards down the stairs because she was like 250 pounds. So use gravity and you pull her down the stairs and she was just laid right there, like right at the bottom of the stairs and turned like someone dragged her down enough to get her in, turned. And then our fire expert that we have on our team, reviewed all the photos, everything, and believes that accelerant was poured on Judy and then up the stairs. So we believe the fire started in the cellar to get rid of her body and the evidence, and then it caught the house on fire. Alan Haskins, he's part of our team now, and he teaches a fire class. He's a fire expert, I call him. But he looked at everything, looked at the photos, and he can see the spalding and the cement and the accelerant. And you can see where her body is positioned and that that's where the hottest fire was, was right where her body was. Now, there was a lot of stuff in the back of the cellar. So I don't think they could get her in that far. So they just brought her in enough just to lay her there. And then the winds that night were blowing towards the house. So you set the cellar on fire, the wind direction and the speed of the wind, it was all going towards the house. Were there arson investigators from the police, from the official investigation who looked at this as well? They did. Unfortunately, what happened is everything was 
all trampled on, right? Because they didn't find her for three days. So they didn't protect the crime scene. They didn't treat the fire as related to Judy at the time. So nothing was roped off. Nothing was changed. The fire investigator only collected the part around Judy and that was it. And we're saying, why wouldn't you clear the whole cellar out? Because who knows what's behind her. And so when we've gone back into the cellar, because the family has preserved everything. So we've been back three times and down in that cellar. I brought Alan with us um, to start going through the cellar. But yeah, they only got the the remains and stuff that was circled around Judy. They didn't go all the way back further, which there could have been a bullet casing, right? There could have been something back there. If you don't mind, take us to the day where she leaves and she's going to return the library books. I don't mean this to sound like a joke, but did she end up returning the library books? Yes, they were returned, but we don't know going back to all the records. There wasn't a great notes taken as to was it did anyone see her in the library drop them off did she do it in the drop off box or heck in the beginning we're like how do we know it was her that returned it <laughs> you know when we're looking at the family we're looking at everyone and we're like how do you know that it was actually Judy right but back in 2008 they didn't have cameras outside the library there was no way of knowing who returned those books unless they had asked those questions back in 2008 and has you and your team interviewed several people in this case i know you you mentioned judy's family yeah so we started with the family as we talked about to go back and we brought them all in and i've been working with the prosecuting attorney a detective assigned to the case And so we brought each individual family member in and re-interviewed them, start from ground zero. We interviewed Mr. Petty hard, right? Because everyone's like, he found her, he went out there. So we interviewed uh, the sisters, the nephews, everybody. Everyone answered. There was no red flags. There was nothing to further investigate them. There was an individual who picked Judy up, and this is where things can get a little bit even more complicated. An individual picked Judy up. His timeline changes quite a bit, but uh, he says he picked her up around 1030, 11 o'clock, and he only drove her maybe 0.5 miles and dropped her off at the farm. He's been the main person of interest for 16 years. He's the last person to see her. He picked her up. He said he dropped her off at the farm. And one of the hardest things for us to get past is Judy was very shy very naive. Other people had seen her walking during that night and had offered her a ride and she declined saying she was okay. She was just out walking. But the problem is how come this guy comes along in a truck, big guy says, Hey, do you need a ride? And Judy says, okay, she's almost there. I mean, it was not a far drive. And so we're like, how does that make any sense? Right? She's almost there. Why would she get in this vehicle with this guy? That doesn't seem likely. And we interviewed him for over two hours. No attorney present. He's taken polygraphs. He's passed them. He really says, I've been attached to this for 16 years. When I dropped her off, she was fine. Dead look in the eye, just nothing to suggest he wasn't lying. I think his timeline's wrong about picking her up because he was on pills. He was out at the bar. The bar closed early. So I don't think he realized what time he actually picked her up, but we have tracked her movements and her pace and it would have put her out there to pick him up. Now, why she got in that truck? Is it because she noticed that her blood sugar was dropping? Big diabetic. She didn't have insulin. She was insulin dependent and pills. Did she like realize she needed a break and was like, I'm going to take this. Or did something else frighten her? Chris said she acted fine in the car. She didn't act drunk. Like, you know how when your sugar drops, you can seem like you're intoxicated. She was very quiet. She didn't talk. 
And he said that right when they got up to the farm gate, she just said, stop here. And she got out and he drove away. But what's crazy is where he was staying at the time is the property on the backside of the petty property. It was all like, okay, so you dropped her off and then she ends up dead and you're staying at this property. I take it it's a big property. It's a huge property. And what you can do is you can use ATVs and there's trails. We actually walked through the trails to this property he was seeing or staying to see how easy it was to get there. It's very easy. You can walk it and you can ATV it. So did Judy know him? No. They weren't even familiar with each other? No. So that's kind of a weird coincidence then if he stops to pick her up and they happen to live on the same property. Right, on the backside. Yeah. He was staying there with a friend. And so we were, we're like, well, why would she get in the car with you? Like, she doesn't know you. She turned down female people earlier. And he's like, I don't know. He's like, I just asked because it was a dangerous road. Like West Virginia, the roads are like this. It's crazy. It's dangerous. I don't know what she was doing. He's like, I saw a female out there walking and I was like, this is dangerous and it's cold out. Like, do you want to ride? And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. I'm wondering if, like, the other people you said offered her rides, maybe a few offered her a ride, like two or three offered her a ride, and she said no, and this guy came along, and she's like, maybe there's some sign here that I should accept a ride. Yeah. Maybe something changed. Yeah, it got too cold or something. So many people, like, offering her rides at some point, she's going to be like, maybe I should, actually. Yeah. Maybe someone knows something I don't. Does this person have a a violent criminal record since Judy was murdered? So I did talk to some ex-wife, an ex-wife who said, yeah, there was physical violence at times between the both of them. He drank a lot. He would take pills. There was no arrest records for him. There was no domestic violence reports. Of course, not every female calls it in. So I believe the ex-wife that things did happen. But other than that, I couldn't find anything else even afterwards that he was in trouble with anything. You mentioned that you were able to question him without a lawyer present. And did you say he passed two polygraphs or just one? One of them was he passed it, but then they did it again because I guess the people back then, like it was not the best practice on how they did it. So they did it again. And it was inconclusive because the one question he answered about do you know who killed Judy? He answered no, and it flagged it. But his reasoning for that is because he thinks somebody else killed Judy. So he kind of knows, but he doesn't know for sure. So when you were asking him if you can question him, did you say, listen, you can get a lawyer here if you want? He actually came down to the station. Oh. So we actually had him in an interview room. So it was him and the the detective and Jen came in because she had done, you know, interrogations in the army. And so she's very well versed in body language and questioning. And so we had her go in with the detective and for over two hours, he sat there and we got out a big map and said, show us where you picked her up. And, you know, he took the sisters out to where he said he thought he picked her up at. So he's been cooperative, but then you have to think, is he inserting himself? Is he too helpful? 
there wasn't anything after that two hour interview that showed that we could continue on this road with him that we had to relook at it because he's been the top guy for 16 years. And maybe that's why it wasn't being solved is it wasn't him. I don't know if you mentioned this earlier and I forgot to ask, but was there anything missing from the house that is known? I I know there was a, a fire and a lot was destroyed, but was anything missing? Not that anyone can tell. So what's interesting is that the Petty Farm, it's a great place to hunt. So they have a bunch of people that would want to hunt on their property. And they had a lot of things there that the neighbor to the right side, his name is Billy, Billy Schrockengoss, and he uh, is now dead by suicide. And he lived to the right side of the petties. They would often come on the petty farm and steal stuff. So Billy had an auction house. And so Mr. Petty knows that they were coming on his property and stealing stuff and then selling it at the auction house. And Mr. Petty has found some of his stuff on Billy's property. Things were coming, were being stolen until after Judy died. What kind of things were being stolen? So a lot of Mr. Petty's tools, a lot of metal, a lot of things that you could you know, pawn and get money for or for to make meth, you know, which is where we're at today is that this is related to things being stolen off their property having to do with Billy being involved. When you uh, had said that you were questioning people, I think I heard you say that you went hard on her dad. Yeah. What were those types of questions and when did you decide to take that interview to the next level? Well, because there's a lot of unknowns with with what happened. And so we knew that we were going to get a lot of questions and I did too. How did you decide to go out to the farm? What made you decide to go out to the farm? Because there was a lot of rumors. You found Judy's bones, right? How do you know that it was there? Because there was literally, you wouldn't know a body was there if you didn't know a body was there. We have the photos, you look at it and you can't even tell that that's a human remain right there. So it's like those kinds of questions that we knew we were going to get from the listeners, but also ourselves. We had to ensure, did something not happen within the house, at grandma's house, a fight, and then she was taken out to the family farm and to separate, right? So we wanted to start with the inner circle, of course, and then go through. Now, Mr. Petty is the most adorable man I'll ever see in my life, Mr. and Mrs. Petty. They are so adorable, but Judy was a pretty large woman, right? And Mr. Petty has always been very small. And to even move her would be a task. But again, burning the family farm down would not have been something that he would have done. And people are like, why didn't he call from a cell phone? He didn't have a cell phone. He's kind of old school. You have no cell up there anyway. Um, People are like, well, why did he call his daughter instead of calling 911 first, right? Because he called his daughter first to be like, oh my God, our property's on fire and ran back up. So she called 911. When asked that, Mr. Petty goes, I don't know. Like, I was just like, oh, my God, this can't be happening. Like, my property's on fire. I called my daughter because I don't know what's going on, right? And so we really wanted to clear up and ask him the hard questions before we continued. That must have been pretty difficult for you to have to ask these questions because after seeing his picture and hearing a description of him, I mean, you, you want to be compassionate to this man. Okay, so here's the truth on this one. I didn't interview Mr. Petty for that reason. I sat and watched in another room because I were too involved and I didn't want to jeopardize that because when he starts crying and he blames himself, he drove the main road thinking she would have walked that and she took back roads. So you start talking to him and he starts bawling. Did I miss her? I didn't see her. Could I have gotten there? 
And so we all agreed as a team, I wouldn't be the best person to go in and talk with Mr. Petty. I'm just too emotionally invested. And he may not be honest if I'm in there, right? He may say something or do something because maybe he doesn't want to disappoint me or, you know, the team. And so I watched uh, as Doug interviewed him. And then it's a good thing, too, because I was like, ball. And Doug came on. I was like, why are you being so mean to Mr. Petty? Well, everyone's uh, seems pretty satisfied with the Petty family and, and them not having involvement. Yes, yes. There was, they answered all the questions. Everything seemed to line up. There wasn't anything further that we felt like, and eh, there's some red flags here. Let's keep going. So we then went on to Chris, right? Because then we're like, okay, so now let's talk to Chris, who's the last guy to see her alive, really, as far as we know. And he admitted that himself. You know, he was at a bar one night and her picture came up and he's like, hey, I think that's the chick I dropped off. And then someone heard him say that and called Mr. Petty. So, I mean, if you did something to Judy, you're not going to be like, hey, I picked her up. I mean, no one would have any idea until you said something. But again, is that someone who has a big ego? Yeah, could have been just like a half truth or something like that, or could have been just the absolute truth. Right. And you mentioned Billy. So Billy committed suicide in 2015. Was he ever confronted about stealing from the Petty family? No. So what we end up finding out through our investigation is through 15 years, Billy's name and his nephew, Mitchell, were never interviewed, never in the case files, names never mentioned. And they lived next to the Petty farm and there was stuff being stolen. Mr. Petty has that in the case file. Him saying, Billy and the Wright family were stealing off my property, but there's no follow-up with them. There's no conversation with them anywhere. So what I did is, of course, I'm calling everybody up and down, you know, who lived up and down the road here from the Petties. And everyone's like, I'm surprised the cops never came and talked to me. And so I did finally, in talking to different people, because Billy has always been the name that when you talk to community people, everyone thinks Billy killed her. It's like that town rumor, or maybe it's true. Billy, 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 Billy did have mental health issues. He was a drinker. You know, he would sit at the bar and talk to himself. People describe him as creepy and they would stay away from him. He had really bad hygiene. Like he was just one of those people that people didn't have to associate with if they didn't have to. So everyone would say Billy Bill and we're like, this guy's being a scapegoat because, right, because of all these things. It turns out that when we look at everything and I've talked to an ex-girlfriend of Billy's back then, he has a very physical background. He has a hot temper. He always carried a gun on him 24-7. But I spoke to somebody who said, well, Billy told somebody that Mitchell, his nephew, killed Judy and that they burned her up in the cellar. For 16 years, nobody has ever mentioned Mitchell's name or Billy saying he knows who did it. So that was a big breakthrough for this case since nobody has ever heard those two names. For Billy, I don't think Billy would call somebody up and say, hey, this person killed Judy for shits and giggles. I mean, it's not something you just say. And he had details about what happened. This person asked Billy, were you there? Were you part of it? And he didn't deny it. It's like this crazy, like, mom and dad, Chris, and then you've got Billy, and then you got the nephew, and it's like... And so Billy and his nephew, they lived on the property. Billy was seen around town talking to himself. Do you know if he was hearing voices back? Yeah, people would say like he would have full-blown conversations to himself out loud. But then people also describe him as very smart, smart enough to get away with something. Someone said, told, told me that they told somebody at the bar, 
don't fuck with Billy. He's very smart and he could get away with murder. And I'm like, that's very interesting. So people would say you would have conversations with Billy. He'd be off in his own world. But if you said, hey, Billy, he could he could snap out of it and have a conversation with you. And I just got confirmation the other night. He would use the trails. So there's a trail from Billy's house to the Petty property. Back then they could use ATVs. They could use tractors. Billy and his family would go up and steal from the Petty property and then take it back. And, you know, Billy had told this person that the reason Judy was killed was because she knew too much. And I'm like, what the hell would Judy know? But I do believe she showed up and surprised them. They were either stealing stuff from their property. The other thing to know is that Billy had a huge crush on Judy, huge crush on Judy. So she shows up. I mean, it's a crime of opportunity. I'm not quite sure. So it's just interesting how she was burned in the place she hated. And she just happened to show up on her family property. And this happened. The question that you said, Chris, was inconclusive is whether or not he knows who killed Judy. And he said no. Had he ever mentioned Billy or Mitchell in any circles before? Yes, Billy. So Billy would always be at this bar, the same bar that Chris is at. But Billy always sat by himself. No one really talked to Billy. But I just looked it up. I forgot. From Billy's house to the petty property is 64 yards. I know Mitchell was Billy's nephew. He's also not with us anymore. What's the age difference there? I guess, how old was he at the time of Judy's death? He would have been, I think, in his 20s. He died from a drug overdose from heroin. And what we know about Mitchell is that he was always going on people's property. He was known as the town thief. So Mitchell would scope out places during the day, go at night, ride his ATV, He would steal things to then sell for his pill addiction. He then got into meth and would make meth out in the woods, the shake and bake method, as I'm learning. So the best place you could do that is a property like the Petties, right? It's 65 yards from your uncle's property. You've been up there. You have a cellar from the elements, right? You can go down the steps and you have protection. But also I'm learning, is it metallic that you would pawn off to then make meth. So it's just interesting because then you have Billy, you know, took his life. When I looked at it, it shocked me. He died January 24th of 2015, which is coming up to Judy's anniversary of her death, which is February 8th. And when I took a look at that, I thought, well, that's interesting because every year Parkersburg does big news. The family, they, they put it back out, but we believe I believe that Billy Mitchell and Billy's sister, Kim Wright, who's alive, is all involved. Kim won't talk to us. She refuses to talk. She slams the door. She won't answer questions. She says we're trying to kill her. So she's not willing to try to help clear her brother or her son. And you have to wonder why when everyone else is talking. I just found out, too, she would also be up on the petty farm stealing. So I'm like, oh my God, how many people, and I think that's why it hasn't been solved or people talking is because it's this little, this family, everybody um, that I've talked to doesn't have nice things to say about this family. And so I think that's why it's been able to been kept so, so small. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Man, I feel terrible for the Petty family. I mean, everyone's stealing from them, and then this happens. And what kind of community are you trying to be a part of? Uh, How did they even manage to remain there? The rest of the community has been great. And what has happened since our investigation is everybody wanting justice for the Petties. 
and you know really coming together we had a, i held a benefit there in parkersburg last february for the anniversary people donated items we raised money to increase the reward fund you know i'm getting more leads this week in regards to kim's involvement and everyone's just saying you know kim's not going to talk kim's not going to talk and she hasn't been but what's interesting too is that we have strong reason to believe and a lawyer did confirm this that kim wrote billy's suicide note leaving the property to herself. Now, how did a lawyer confirm that? So we've talked to somebody who said that they compared Billy's handwriting to Kim's in regards to the will testament that was written. It was one of the other siblings who was left out of this. He didn't want to press charges or go after them because they didn't have anything. He just wanted his entitlement. Billy had a lot of money. He had a lot of money coming from mineral rights that was in the mail when he killed himself. The check that hadn't been received yet. What is that? It's like the property, the oil the on the oil rig up there. So they have oil. And so Billy would get thousands of dollars for the mineral rights. Was the check cashed? I don't know if it was cashed. I know that Kim managed all the financials. It's a weird thing. If you ever get a chance to look on our Facebook, we posted the side by side of Billy's actual signature that was on court documents and then Kim's signature. And you can tell that it's not the same handwriting. Apologies if I missed it during this conversation, but how did Billy kill himself? A shotgun. His house um, and the auction house that's his property that now Kim owns. He drove from his driveway, went around, went to the auction house, got out, and then shot himself. Had he ever expressed the desire to commit suicide in the past? Nobody has said that. We've had a lot of people really struggling the fact that he did that. A lot of people are like, no way. You know, there's no way he would do that. He had this money coming. There was no reason for him to do this. And then we have other people saying, well, he was very afraid of Mitchell because Mitchell was always coming um, around for money at that time, wanting money for drugs. Now I have to wonder, is there not this correlation of knowing what happened to Judy, pressure to keep quiet, the weight of it all? Was there blackmail going on? Like, and that's what I mean. There's like so much to this. Like, it's hard not to try to get lost in the weeds. So I might have gone too far down in the weeds with throwing everybody in here, but it's a crazy dynamic. So what are your thoughts on this being one person who may have done this or or more than one? I think there was definitely more than one. I think that Billy himself, according to our source, didn't deny being there, didn't deny being involved. And based on what Billy himself had said, I believe that it it very much could have been Billy and Mitchell up there stealing. Um, Something happened and then, you know, they called Kim who then helped clean it up. So Kim was like the mother hen. So everything funneled through Kim, all decisions, the money. They were into selling pills illegally through the auction house. They also went through, uh, they had marijuana plants growing on the line of the petty farm. So you could say, oh, it's not mine, it's theirs kind of thing. So there is a lot of things that were going on back then. So I think there's more than one for sure. And either, you know, Mitchell did kill Judy and Billy was there or knows about it. Either way, Kim knows what happened. Either it was Billy or it was Mitchell. You know, I'm tending to go towards more towards Billy, given he had the crush on Judy. I've heard from another source that they heard that he raped her and then killed her. I guess I I can't confirm any of that, 
But the more people that are kind of saying the same thing, there has to be some truth in that as we continue to build a case for the prosecuting attorney. These things that you've heard people say, are those things that are submitted directly to law enforcement as tips? Yeah. So I'm working again with the detective for the prosecuting attorney. His name is Doug. And I give him everything that I have. Uh, He has sat in on interviews with phone calls that I've had. He's spoken to people that I've spoken to. And so right now I'm looking at putting it all together. My understanding is that because both Billy and Mitchell have died, that what we need to do is build a case, a circumstantial case, which I have a ton of circumstantial evidence that puts them up there, puts the violent history, all of that there, enough for the sheriff to say it's reasonable to believe that this person was involved and can close it that way. And at the beginning of this conversation, I had said homicide, but that's just my own personal opinion. I just want to be clear about that. I said homicide just based on like reading what you've come up with and the research and everything. But what is it actually classified as officially? Undetermined. I'm calling it a homicide because we want to treat it as a homicide till proven otherwise. The saving grace was her liver. The killer literally got that lucky. It's almost the perfect storm, right? Everything collapsed on her. It was an oven, basically, a tin roof. Nobody knew she was underneath it. The one thing that helped was she was curled sideways, and I think that's what protected her liver. I mean, if they would have put that fire out when they saw it, we would have we would have had more of her. Her steel toe boot was recovered, so that was in there from the hiking boots. I guess they're very uncomfortable. I've never worn them, but most people say you don't want to walk 13 miles in those boots. Now, I'm not sure of Judy's personality, but do you think she would have confronted somebody if she saw them stealing from her property or from that property? I don't think she would have confronted them. I think she would have asked like, what's going on? What are you doing here? Very nice. Very, she was always nice to Billy, not because she's rude, but she's just a nice person like her parents. You know, that's where I'm wondering when Billy's like, oh, she knew too much. So they, you know, got rid of her. They burned her up in that corn crib. I think that either there was doing drugs or doing something, stealing something that they knew that she would tell her parents. But then I'm thinking, what's worse than homicide and burning? I mean, I don't know the real motive behind that. Well, it really is such a tragic story because it seems like this person who wasn't out to harm anybody, it didn't have a bone to pick with anybody and no one seemed to have any issue with her just seems to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and you're right i mean this could have been the perfect crime had it not been for the discovery of the liver what is it going to take though what is it going to take for somebody to say something about this because if it's been this long they're thinking that they've basically gotten away with it and that's the thing i've been fighting against too my partner justin remmel he he does the podcast editing of this all so Justin and I are the the leaders on this. And so we've talked about this quite a bit. And I think it's ultimately going to be the the pressure on Kim to talk. So, you know, Kim's not willing to talk. And everyone's been so afraid of this family. Everyone I've talked to, they don't want to talk about this family. They all think this family's, you know, into a lot of stuff. It's always been hush-hush. I have a lot of people who want to remain anonymous while talking to me and, you know, I think back in the day in 2008, I think they had a lot of pull. Today, people aren't as afraid to talk. So I'm getting a lot more information and hopefully Kim will will show up. Because the other thing I said to somebody too, is they're like, you're just trying to put it on Billy and Mitchell. They're dead. They can't defend themselves. You're looking for a scapegoat, right? You get all of that noise and it's coming from that family. Well, 
they were okay with Chris Cutright being the scapegoat for 15 years. No one said anything about that, but it's their job to help defend and speak for their family member, right? It's up to Kim. I mean, we were just going to ask her basic questions such as, hey, did Billy ever tell you anything? Did Billy ever mention that he heard something, that he saw something? He would walk around at night. Do you know? And she wouldn't even get on the phone and answer those questions. I mean, she doesn't even know what we were going to ask her. It's just interesting that now it's kind of like, well, it's really up to you to defend your family member. You don't really think that she cares, right, to do it? No, no, because I think she knows. I think she has some culpability in it, if you will, because there's no everyone who I've talked to said if Billy did do this or Mitchell, they would their first phone call would have been to Kim and Kim would have come up with the plan or helped. So I guarantee you she knows what's going on because she's gotten so defensive She refuses to talk. She tells other people not to talk to us. She says we're trying to kill her. And I'm like, by doing what? Like asking questions and trying to solve a murder? How are we trying to kill you, Kim? Like, is this much stress because we're looking at Judy's murder? If you have nothing to do with this and your family had nothing to do with this, why is it stressing you out so much? It's a great question. I'd like to think that uh, she'd be listening to this program. (laughs) I hope so, but... We'll put this on our podcast, of course, and so everyone can come over and listen. And we have a huge uh, support system in our Facebook group and our page, and people get excited about our episodes. And so they will listen to this, and I guarantee you they will listen. They've been following along. They've been listening to our podcast. They have people in our Facebook group monitoring what we're saying and doing. So, Kim, call me. Well, big thanks to you, Melissa, for coming on and helping us learn about Judy's story. And shout out Justin, too, because we know him. And and we even did a panel with him years ago at a crime con. Thank you very much, Melissa. And where can people find more about um, this case? So we have our podcast. It's called Safe Haven, the Unsolved Murder of Judith Petty. And also our Facebook group is the same uh, name. You can find us at Safe Haven, the Unsolved Murder of Judith Petty. And it's crowdsourcing. So what that means is people come on, send us information, tips, ideas. Have you tried this? Have you looked at this? The more people that lay eyes on this case might see things we didn't see or ask questions that we didn't think of. So it's a really great way to get people involved in true crime who want to help but like myself right they're not cops so a lot of people in Parkersburg are helping 